City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, special guest Pastor Ed Moore from North Shore Baptist Church in Queens, New York, is preaching a message on restoration from Genesis chapter 50. We hope you are blessed by the message today. morning. I bring you greetings from North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens, New York City. It has been my delight to be with you for the past couple of days. Uh, I would like to extend a thank you to uh, your pastor for inviting me to be here. I want to say something about him before I get into the message today, although I feel as though what I'm about to say to you, you know already, but I think it should be reiterated, Uh, and that is that he is a pastor, first of all, who knows what he is doing. Secondly, he cares, he is all in. And number three, he is very godly. Now that combination of knowing what you're doing, caring, being all in, and being godly is very rare, and I hope that you know what a jewel you have. I hope that you know that there is something unique that is happening here at this church, and what is happening here, and I get to speak, thankfully, at a lot of different churches, but I'm particularly impressed by this church and the work that is going on here, and so although it was my assignment to come and to bless you, I myself have been the one who has been blessed by being with you for these past couple of days. My observation uh, concerning what is happening at this church, uh, the only thing that is better than your pastor is your pastor's wife. So make sure that you extend your appreciation to them and the ministry that they have here at this church. I would like to talk to you today on the subject of restoration. Restoration, please allow me to illustrate. A while back, I went into the barber, and my barber does not speak English as his main language, but I tried to explain to him What you need to do is give me a haircut, but leave something there on top so that I can move it around so as to create the illusion that I actually have hair. Why do I do that? Well, uh, because I'm not a quitter like Josh Whitney, okay? I'm I'm gonna go with the comb over if I have to. I'm gonna gonna work with this, and I'm I'm going to try to hold out as long as I I can and pretend that I have hair. I kid you not, he is cutting my head and a friend of his walks into the barber shop. Now get the picture, I'm in the chair, the mirror is in front of me, he is behind me, he is cutting my hair. He is looking at my head as he is cutting my hair until his friend walks in. His friend walks in and sits directly behind him. As he continues to cut my hair, he turns his head around and has a conversation with his friend while cutting my hair. I'm looking at my head, but he's not. At the end of that haircut, I'm saying to myself, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. I need what is known as restoration. And in this world, we all need restoration, and I think you know why. It is because through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men. And so entropy has an undefeated record. Fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales. 
All the king's horses and all the king's men are busy. The reason they are busy is because we live in a broken world. I think Job said it best when he said, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. We have bodies that deteriorate. We have memories that evaporate. Uh, We have relationships that dissolve. We have problems in this world and we are constantly in need of restoration. We have relationships that break up. We have finances that disappear. But the one place where we need restoration perhaps is the place where we realize it and feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. God is holy, and we have been separated from God because of our sin, and so we need restoration. Well, I want to illustrate restoration for you from a Bible story which comes from 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, but before we do, allow me please to pray for us and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of the word. Father, my heart is filled with joy as I look out upon these people right now, and Lord, you have put a love in my heart for them. But Lord, I know that even as I proclaim the word to them, Lord, you love them much more than I do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would demonstrate your love today in the preaching of the word and that you would convince them, Lord, without any doubt that you are a God who restores. And I pray that the power of the gospel would reach these people, those that know you, Lord, to be more confident in you. And Lord, those that don't know you at all, that today would be the day that you would restore them to yourself in a right relationship and forgive their sins and save them. Lord, I pray that you, through the preaching of the word, would do what only you can do, and that is to bring restoration. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, our friend and our Savior and our King. Amen. Amen. Turn please to 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the first six verses. As we do, I'm just going to make my way through the text very slowly, sort of explaining it as we go. And we begin with verse 1. Now, Elisha, let's just stop right there. Who was Elisha? Elisha was the prophet that came immediately after Elijah. Elisha was the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this story is about Elisha. It said, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can. Why? For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. Who is this woman to whom he is referring? She's called here the woman whose son had been raised to life. We are introduced to her back in 2 Kings chapter 4. She is known as the Shunammite woman. She's from a place called Shunam. She knew that Elisha would be uh, traveling through that region from time to time. And so in a benevolent act, she 
and her husband, with great hearts of hospitality, built a room on the top of their house. What was the room for? Well, it was there so that when Elisha would pass through that region, he would have a place to sleep. It was a very modest little room with a bed, but it was a place for Elisha to sleep when he would pass through that region. He was very grateful for what she had done for him. And so he said to her, you've been very kind to me. What can I do for you? And she said, I don't want anything. I dwell among my people. I have everything I want. There's nothing you can do for me. However, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, went to Elisha and said, I know what the woman needs. She's getting a little bit older and her husband is already old. They don't have any children. And so Elisha said to the woman, next year at this time, you're going to have a child. Fade in, fade out. A year later, she has a son. That little boy grows up, and when he is a small boy, he is out in the field one day working with his father, and he begins to complain of a headache. The little boy goes into the house, crawls up on his mother's lap, and there in her arms, the little boy dies. What does the woman do? She picks up the child, she walks up the steps into the room of Elisha and she lays the little boy out on the bed. She then goes to find Elisha who is not there but he is 16 miles away at Mount Carmel. And so she makes the journey to Mount Carmel. She speaks with Elisha and she tells him that her little boy has died and Elisha says to his servant Gehazi, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take my staff and I want you to go as quickly as you can ahead of us. Probably Gehazi was more fleet of foot than Elisha was at this point. I want you to go ahead of us. Don't talk to anybody on the way. I want you to go in the room where the child is and lay the staff across the child. Then Elisha and the woman made their way back to Shunem. They went into the upper room and in what was arguably the most unusual prayer meeting in all the Bible, Elisha raises the little boy to life. That is the woman to whom the scripture refers, the woman whose son had been raised to life. Now later, in an act of kindness, our text for today, Elisha comes to her and says to her, you are going to need to leave here. And the reason you're going to leave is because there is going to be a seven-year famine. Now, why was there a seven-year famine? Well, God promised in the old covenant, in the law of Moses, that if his covenant people, Israel, would obey the Lord, it would rain. And if it would rain, things would grow. And if things would grow, there would be something to eat. God also promised that if the people would break covenant, the skies would dry up. It would stop raining. If it stopped raining, things would stop growing. If things stopped growing, there would be nothing to eat. And so Elisha says, I have word from the Lord that for the next seven years, it is not going to rain. Now consider how long that is. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a drought that lasted three and a half years. During the three and a half year drought, there were people who were dying. There's no way that and stay and live through a seven-year drought. So go wherever you want to, but you just can't stay here. And what does the woman do? She and her household temporarily travel to the land of the Philistines. Let's pick up the reading in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 3. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. 
She counts out the seven years. She comes back after seven years. The drought is over. And when she gets back, her land and her house have been confiscated by the government. Nothing ever changes, okay? Thank you for laughing, (laughs) but it's true. (laughs) She gets back. Her land has been confiscated, and she goes to the king to appeal for her house and her land. Now, who is the king at this point? Well, the king at this point is a man by the name of Jehoram. He is the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, and the apple has not fallen far from the tree. He is an excessively wicked king, and she's going to him, and she's going to ask that she can receive, here's our word for the day, restoration of her property and her house. As we move to verse 4, I find it to be one of the most unusual verses in all the Bible. I can read you the English words. I can explain what they mean. Here's what I cannot explain to you. It is a bizarre verse. I cannot explain to you why verse 4 is in the Bible. I cannot explain why this happened. Consider how unusual the happenings are of verse 4. Here's what it says. Now the king, that is King Jehoram, was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. The reason that this is uh, really a crazy verse, first of all, is because why would this wicked king want to know the great things that the Lord had done through Elisha when, on multiple occasions, this king had tried to kill Elisha? Secondly, it's a very unusual verse because this king, with his own eyes, had witnessed some of the miracles which were performed by Elisha. The other thing which is really crazy about this is that he goes to Gehazi to find this information. Now, why was Gehazi available to answer these questions? Well, he was available because he was no longer in the ministry. And the reason that he was no longer in the ministry is because he at this point is a leper. And the reason that he is a leper at this point is because he had tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman. He was cursed with leprosy, and so now he is no longer in the ministry. He is a defrocked clergyman, and one day the king gets up and he has nothing better to do than to summon Gehazi and to ask, would you please recount for me all of the things which Elisha has done, the works of God? I do not understand why this king wanted this information. However, I do believe that he wanted the information It is just bizarre to think about why he would want this information. Now, notice what happens then as we read on in verse 5. And while, let's just stop right there on that word while, W-H-I-L-E, while, at the same time, simultaneously, at the same time at which this was happening. If you understand and grasp the word while, then the rest of the sermon is going to make sense. If you don't, it will make less sense. So let's just camp out on this word. There is something which happens while Gehazi is talking. And what is it that happens? While, verse five, he, Gehazi, was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life. Behold, 
Anytime you see the word behold, it means do the best that you can to envision or to paint a picture in your mind's eye of what is happening. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, that is the boy who had been dead, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman. She's right in front of you right now. And here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Do you, do you, have, you, have you painted the picture in your mind's eye? The king says, I want you to tell me all about the miracles of Elisha. And while he is talking about those miracles, particularly the miracle of the dead being raised to life, at that exact moment, the woman walks in with her son. Gehazi himself is shocked at that point, And he says, here she is. And here is her son who has been raised to life. We don't even know exactly what Gehazi said. But I'm sure as he walked into the king's presence, he himself was a little bit shocked when the king asked, could you tell me everything that Elisha has done? And perhaps his response went something like this. Well, king, I don't know how much time you have, but there were many miracles which Elisha had done. So for example, when he first was ordained to the ministry, he was with Elijah who came before him. And when a chariot came to pick up Elijah, you know, swing low, sweet chariot coming for to carry me home, as he is being carried up, the mantle falls from Elijah to Elisha. He uses it to part the Jordan River. He walks across on dry land. When he gets to the other side, he comes to Jericho. When he is there, the water is bitter. He puts salt in the water and the water becomes sweet. From there, he goes on to Bethel. And as he's walking to Bethel, there are several young people who are making fun of him because he is bald. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Makes fun of him because he is bald. And two she-bears come out of the woods and maul and kill 42 young people. Uh, there was another time, King, and, and it was the craziest thing you've ever seen. There was this pot of stew, and it was poisoned. And, and people were dying because they were eating this poisoned stew. And he took some flour, and he put it in the stew, and the stew became edible. Uh, there was another time when, in fact, you were there yourself, King, when we were out in the desert, and we were about to die of thirst. And with no river and no rain, water appeared, which satisfied our thirst and gave the illusion of blood. Our enemies came out and we defeated our enemies. There was another time, King, when we were down by the Jordan River and we had a borrowed axe. And somehow this axe head had fallen into the water and Elisha walks over and he waves a stick over the water and the axe head floated. King, there were so many miracles that he did, but by far the most incredible miracle, which I saw with my own eyes, is there was this little boy. And I'm telling you, King, he wasn't injured, he wasn't sick, he wasn't wounded, he was dead. He was stiff, he was cold, he was dead. And he was laying on this bed, and Elisha got on top of him uh, face to face, and he prayed for the boy, and the boy got up that's him right there. The boy that I am telling you about has just walked into the room. That is the boy and that is his mother. They are right here right now. 
Now, maybe the king at this point has some disbelief as to what is happening, and so he wants to, he wants to corroborate this story, and he wants to make sure that this wasn't choreographed, and so the king asked the question here in verse 6, and when the king asked the woman, she told him, and so the king appointed an official to her, saying, restore all that was hers together with the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, when the king saw the woman and her son walking in as the woman and her son were being talked about, he asked her a few questions and when he was satisfied that it was indeed a true story, he appointed an official who said, I want you to give the woman back her house, I want you to give her back her land, and I want you to restore to her everything that would have grown on that land during the seven years that she was gone. Absolute, complete, total, full restoration. That is our illustration for today. That is our Bible story for today. Now, what I would like to do from this story is I would like to tell you how, how the Lord brought this about. And I have three points, and all three of my points begin with the letter P. First of all, consider that our glorious message of restoration is always controlled by the design of providence. Providence, what is providence? Well, providence, quite simply put, is the doctrine that God is in absolute control of everything. Uh, that he orchestrates the movement of the largest planet and the smallest molecule and everything in between. That he is sovereign and that he rules over all. That God has a lock, L-O-C-K, on all things. That he limits, orders, controls, and knows all things. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass, as it says in the Westminster Confession. Listen to the abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Article 4 says this. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, end quote, and well said. Do you see it in this story? Uh, how, what are the chances that at the same time that he would be talking about the woman and her son, that they would walk into the room at that exact time? Well, that is controlled by providence. And if there is such a thing as providence, then there is no such thing as luck. In fact, I would say this. If luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not exist. Uh, nothing is random. Something strange will happen and you will hear a young person say, oh, that was so random. Uh, actually, nothing is random if God is in charge. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. I mean, think about this mathematically. What are the mathematical chances that after seven years, approximately 2,550 days, at the exact moment, exact hour, exact day when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite woman that the woman and her son would walk into the room into the king's presence at that exact time. Would you like to sit down with a calculator and figure out the mathematical odds of that happening? Would it be 100 to 1? Or would the, would the odds be better? Maybe it would be a 
million to one or a billion to one. So you're telling me there's a chance. Actually, the odds of this happening are so astronomical that they could not be mathematically calculated. The odds of this happening are essentially zero unless God is directing traffic. And God was directing traffic and God now does direct traffic. You see, the doctrine of providence is the doctrine which says God is in control of all things. Sometimes you will hear Christian young people say this, there will be something good which will happen and it will be, at least from our perspective, unusual. Things will come together and they will work out well and they will say, oh, that was such a God thing. Well, I would agree with them that what has happened is a God thing, but I would follow it up with this question. Can you name for me anything that has ever happened which is not a God thing? Everything which happens, by definition, is a God thing, and if it's not a God thing, then there is no God. God is in control of all things. He is in control of all of our movements. This does not mean that we are robots. We are not robots. We make genuine choices. But please understand that the movements which we make, the choices which we make, are governed by a larger unseen hand. And so, when you think about restoration, think about providence. Let me give you an illustration of this as it relates to evangelism and salvation. Several years ago, I had a friend, and for many years, I was trying to evangelize this friend, to tell him the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for sinners, and that if he believes on Jesus, that he will be saved. My friend had several challenges to this. First of all, his challenge is that he was Jewish and was not raised to believe in Jesus Christ. The second problem that he had is that he came from a scientific background where he was raised to be an atheist. The third problem that he had is that he was a heroin addict. And so for many years, I would try to bring him the gospel. He lived in another state. He didn't live in New York, but I would see him several times a year. I would invite him to church all the time. He would never come to church with me. Finally, he came to church with me once, but really I was getting nowhere in my evangelistic efforts with this guy. Well, a period had passed where I hadn't heard from him for a while, and I thought it strange that I had not heard from him. And a couple of months later, he called me up and he said, you're not going to believe what has happened to me. He said, I became homeless, and when I was homeless, I was hit by a car. Uh, I was then taken into a hospital, and I was taken there for two reasons. First of all, to dry me out, because I was high on heroin at the time, and secondly, to treat the injury from being hit by the car. Uh, When he went into that hospital, the clothes that he was wearing were unwearable after that. They were so filthy because he had been homeless. And he was being cared for in that hospital by a nurse, the nurse who at the time was not a Christian, but she was a very loving and compassionate woman. And she realized that after his six or eight week stint in the hospital, as he was preparing to leave, that he didn't have any clothes. And so she went to one of her mother's friends who was roughly the same size as this man and says, can you give me some clothes just so that this man, when he leaves the hospital, will have something to wear? 
And so some clothes were given to the man. He's then taken to a rehab center, which is about 40 miles away from this hospital. When he calls me, he says, I'm in the rehab center now. I'm getting help. I'm feeling better, but I'm still injured. But I'm going to be here for a while. And as providence, that's our word, which leads to restoration. As providence would have it, the town where the rehab center was, was an area where I had some friends. I had some Christian friends. And so I started this little text thread with about 10 people that I knew in that area who were Christians. And after a few seconds, a woman pipes in and she says, I think I know who this man is. My daughter is a nurse in a hospital about 40 miles away, and for the past six or eight weeks, she has been taking care of this man. She is not a Christian, but she loves this man, and she is compassionate toward his plight. There was another man on the text feed whose name was Chris, who jumped in, and Chris happened to be the one who gave his clothes so that this man would have something to wear. Chris jumps in and says, I'm going by the rehab center to see him right now. I don't know him. I don't know what he looks like. I'm just going to go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. (laughs) True story, true story. These 10 people over the course of several weeks, loved this man, visited this man, gave the gospel to this man, and led this man to Christ. And when he professed Christ and gave his testimony of how he came to know the Lord, he said, the one thing that overcame me and brought me to the conclusion that there must be a God is he said, there are no mathematical chances that a woman that you would know whose daughter was my nurse would have a man who would bring me clothes and he realized that there was someone at work. He realized that someone to be God and he realized Jesus Christ to be the son of God and he professed faith in Jesus Christ. What was it that ultimately led to his testimony? It was the providence of God. And in the same way, I will say to you, I do not know what is happening in your life right now. And I will tell you something that is even more important than that. You don't even know what is happening in your life right now. But we can rest today that there is someone who does know what is going on right now, and he is not inactive. Nothing is random, but your steps are being directed. And whatever it is that God is bringing your way is right And it is for the good of those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Restoration is brought about through the doctrine of divine providence. God is in control. The second point this morning is that our glorious message of restoration is carried out most effectively in the context of pain. Pain. Uh, What was the worst pain that the Shunammite woman received? Well, it was the fact that her son died. In fact, I don't even want to meditate upon this very long because the the, the sorrow that this woman must have felt on the 16-mile journey from Shunem to Carmel and back must have been intense. I mean, this was her only child, which she had later in life, and this little boy died suddenly and without warning. Pain was a factor 
in bringing about her restoration. The reason that I say that is, if the boy had not died, then the boy would not have been raised to life. And if the boy had not been raised to life, then it would have not gotten the attention of the king. If a random woman walks into the presence of the king after a seven-year drought and says, give me back what you have taken from me, first of all, the king probably wouldn't hear her, but even if he did hear her, the response of this wicked king is going to be, woman, get in line. Things are tough all over. We have just had a seven-year drought. I'm not giving you your property back. But that which caused the king to notice her and ultimately give her restoration was the fact that she had a son who was dead and was miraculously brought back to life. I do not think that this woman thought as she was walking from Shunem to Carmel, this one day is going to be used to bring about the restoration, the full restoration of my property and land. And in the same way, when we are going through pain, it seems painful. And the reason it seems painful is because it is painful. And the last thing that is going through our minds when we are suffering is, this one day will be used for good. Consider the story of Joseph. If Joseph is not the favorite of his father, then he is not hated by his brothers. Now, being hated by your brothers is a painful thing. If he isn't hated by his brothers, then he isn't sold into slavery. If he isn't sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. If he doesn't meet Potiphar, he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get falsely accused of rape. If he doesn't get falsely accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. If he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, he doesn't under, the cupbearer doesn't understand that he can interpret dreams. And if the cupbearer doesn't understand that Joseph can interpret dreams, then Pharaoh doesn't understand that Joseph can interpret dreams. And if he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dreams, then during the years of plenty, the Egyptians will not store away food. And if they don't store away food, there won't be any food. And if there is no food during the years of drought, then the Egyptians will start to die. And if the Egyptians start to die, then all of the people around that region are going to die. And if the people around that region die, then his family is going to die. And if his family dies, then his brother Judah is going to die. And if his brother Judah dies, there is going to be no lion of the king of Judah. Judah. And if there is no lion of the king of Judah, there's going to be no King David. And if there's no King David, there's going to be no King David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And if there is no Jesus Christ, then you're going to hell and so am I. But there was a plan and it was all brought about by pain. Now, if you put blinders on Joseph at any point, here he is sitting in a jail cell for something that he has not done, and he is just being faithful to God. You would look at that and say, what in the world is going on? However, if you get in your Romans 8.28 helicopter and you lift and you look at the whole story, you see that Joseph at the end of his life when his brothers come to him and say, oh, please have mercy on us. Oh, oh, pl oh please don't. Oh, I I'm sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. Joseph says, what are you talking about? Yes, you meant it for evil. I'm not going to give you a pass on that. You're not good guys. You meant it for evil. But there was something greater that was going on. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about, as it is this day, the restoration of life. 
and he didn't even realize what he was saying because he wasn't able to look all the way into the future and see that that restoration of life meant the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say to you, I don't know what your pain is. I, I, I don't know what you're going through right now. Uh, maybe it's a physical ailment. Uh, maybe you, you, you really don't know where you're gonna get the money to pay the rent this month. Maybe you are depressed. Maybe there's some sort of relational problem. Look, as I said at the beginning, we are living in a world which is filled with pain. But I want to assure you that your pain is not random and that your pain is something that God is going to ultimately for his glory. Please consider the greatest pain that the world has ever known. And that was on Good Friday on Mount Calvary where Jesus Christ was taken into Pilate and Pilate ordered him to be scourged. They beat Jesus back. They put a crown of thorns upon him they put a mock scepter in his hand and they, 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 they took that scepter and they beat him on the head and grinding the crown of thorns into his head and, and, they, and they punched him and they jerked out his beard and they spat upon him. And Isaiah says that his visage was marred more than any man. In other words, when they got done beating Jesus Christ, he didn't even look like a human being. But the physical pain that Christ suffered there was, was, was nothing compared to the spiritual agony that he went through where our sins were placed upon him. We're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've gone everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Meaning that when Jesus was on that cross, he was more filthy and more vile than any child molester or rapist that has ever lived. Why? Because he was carrying their sins. He said, I am a worm and not a man. Martin Luther put it best when he said, Jesus was the greatest sinner that ever lived. He never committed a sin, but our sins were put upon him. And it wasn't just the pollution of our sin that was put upon him. It was the payment for that pollution, which had now to be exacted by God. And holy God, looking down out of heaven, seeing our sins upon his son, rolls up his sleeve and hammers his son to death upon that cross and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The world has never known pain such as Jesus endured upon that cross and what was the result of it? The result of it is that my sins forever are gone and they will never be remembered again. God, who knows all things, if he had all of eternity to search for my sins, he could not find them because they are gone. They are gone. And I am alive in Christ and I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit and I have joy and I have the hope of heaven. Why? Because of the pain which Jesus endured for me. And so I say to you, I do not know the pain that you are going through. I, I do not know. I am sympathetic to it. I am not saying that it doesn't hurt. By definition, pain hurts. But I'm saying it is not random. It is not useless. It will be used for good ultimately. It will bring restoration ultimately. Which brings me 
to our final point, and that is that our glorious message of restoration is always accompanied with a demonstration of power. In this particular case, it is divine power. Specifically, it is the power of a risen son. You see, the reason why the king was willing to restore her property was because her previously dead son was now alive and was standing by her side. Notice that the woman does not make an appeal saying, give me back what was mine. I have the deed to it right here. It's rightfully mine. Uh Uh-uh, that wasn't going to help her. She doesn't go before the king and say, king, would you please give me my property back? I am a very benevolent woman. I'm a very hospitable woman. I, I, I have built a room for the prophet. So what? What would this wicked king care about? The only reason that he restores her property was not because of her at all. It was because there was someone standing beside her who used to be dead but was now alive. That was the power of restoration. Now, follow the argument from the lesser to the greater. First, objectively, and then subjectively. Objectively, if a wicked, godless king who on multiple occasions wanted to kill Elisha upon hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not know based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive, but a boy who would eventually die permanently, how much more, we're moving on to the greater now, how much more will a loving, eternal, good, intentional God not only grant temporary restoration, but ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect eternal son standing by our side, proof of our justification. He was raised again for our justification, a son who was dead but came back to life and will live forevermore, never to die again. Do you see the objective truth of the gospel? In other words, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. What is it? It's Jesus. One day, I'm going to stand to be judged. I'm going to stand before the king. I'm going to stand before the judge. I hope in that day, he ain't looking at me. Because if he does, I'm going to be damned eternally. Because I am a sinner. But the gospel says, in that day... When I am judged, he is not going to be looking at me. But because I am in Christ, he will be looking at him. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, not because of me or anything that I have done, but because I am in Christ. There is the objective power of the gospel that have arisen son, which brings about restoration. But let me end with this. There is also the subjective or the experiential power of the gospel which brings about restoration. We're dead. We're not wounded. We're not sick. We're dead. We love ourselves and we love our sin and we are slaves to our sin. 
Somehow God, in his kindness, through his providence, brings us across the path of someone who tells us some good news. And they say, here's the good news. God loves you. Jesus died for you. You can be forgiven right now if you'll believe. Friends, it doesn't matter how cogent our argument is. It doesn't matter how eloquent we are. It doesn't matter how many apologetic arguments we have. It doesn't matter how consistent our lifestyle or our example is. It doesn't matter how well we answer their objections. We, as evangelists, do not possess the ability to bring someone to life. However, the word of God, by his will he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. The power of the word of God, taken by the Holy Spirit, can take a dead person and subjectively take them from darkness into light, from death into life. God can save the dead. And I am evidence of that, and you are evidence of that, and you are evidence of that, that the power of life and restoration ultimately is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's why I, along with the Apostle Paul, will say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because oomph, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And so, do you believe? Well, I will tell you, your belief is, is, a, is a proof of the power of the resurrected Christ giving you life. And if you do not believe today, if you are not a Christian today, I would say to you, from your heart, cry out to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Will you please forgive me? I believe that your son was dead and is now alive. And I believe that when he died, he died for my sins. And I believe that now that he's alive, I can cry out to him and that he will save me. Oh God, have mercy upon me. And in which case, you will experience the greatest restoration imaginable. You will be given life and life eternal. Isn't God a wonderful God that he would orchestrate the movements of our life in providence isn't God a wonderful God that he would take that which is worst, our pain, and translate it into good? Isn't God a wonderful God in that he would give his son for us and then raise that son to life and then stand his son right beside us so that we in the final day might have eternal life and that we might have eternal life right now? Well, friends, I, I don't know who you are right now. I, 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 I don't know you. And I'm not a charismatic, so, so I'm not like getting a word from God. But, but I just sense that there might be somebody here today who is dead, whom God wishes to call to life. I urge you, cry out to Jesus Christ and receive life eternal. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take this message today. Use it, Lord, to, to 
bring restoration to your elect. Uh, this we ask, and we, we, we ask in confidence, believing this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church Podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.